welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have Dr. Craig Heacock. Join us for a conversation about the future of psychedelic healing. Together, we talk about the varying experiences of different psychedelics, exploring these medicines in our relationship to pleasure, and the importance of connecting back to our bodies. This was such a fun conversation where Craig shared their expertise, their lens as a psychiatrist working with these medicines on what the future of psychedelic healing might look like. And together we got into the importance of somatics. Y'all have heard me talk about this on the podcast again and again that our experience is embodied and frequently living in the society that we do live in, we forget that piece and we stay so up in the cognitive experience, forgetting the reality that these emotions have physical embodiment and that part of our healing journey is going to be connecting with our bodies and the felt sensations that are going on as we process things. And so we both kind of shared, you know, a moment of silence for all of the training that is going on in these healing spaces through the therapy psychiatry model that isn't addressing these things, but that's okay. We're changing the collective conscious one conversation at a time. And even the fact that you're tuning into this, dear listener, right? Like the ripples of your awareness to this then go out and affect the communities in your world. And so we're changing the world one conversation at a time. And so even in this moment, dear listener, you're tuning in and I want to invite you, check in with your body. Are there any areas that maybe you're holding tension? Sometimes we'll do that in the jaw, even our shoulders tend to hunch up and around our ears trying to bring those down. Sometimes even in the hips we can be really tensing the glutes and holding there as well. Just want to invite you to take a scan and tune in, see what you notice come up for you. Maybe some areas feel really good and you can celebrate that and maybe some areas, yeah, could use a little bit of a deep breath just letting it go and relaxing into your body. And I also want to say that we have a new Patreon member, Beat Duck, that joined and I really appreciated that we had a conversation about our last episode that we released, episode 109, on yeah, navigating a space and a world where your identities might not feel safe and accepted and And that is something that I will continue to talk about in this space with you, dear listener. You know that you're not alone in this journey and in this process of unpacking these things. I am here with you. Other people are with you in this space and you're not alone as much as it might seem like it to the outside world. And that's also a big reason why I wanted to create the Patreon movement. I mean, yes, this podcast takes a lot of time and work and man, have I invested so many hours in this without being paid. But at the end of the day, like what we're also creating is a community space, right? Where we can talk about these things. And yeah, I posted a photo from one of my first uh, group play experiences and And I was processing some of what has come up as a researcher in kink and sex and non-monogamy 
and also as someone who's training in psychedelic work, the crossovers of those two things are intense, y'all. I am sitting in between the two of them. We have altered states of consciousness with kink and psychedelics and the intentionality and the processing around those sorts of things. It's just their resonances are flying across the board. So I'm excited that I will be recording with another therapist who is similarly in that space. And while I prepare for that episode, I opened up a conversation about it on Patreon so that I could ask all of the Modern Anarchy family, have you seen any crossovers in your experience of kink and psychedelics? And what else would you add as a potential integration between those two practices? So yeah, if you want to join that conversation or have things to add on that front, please join the Patreon so that we can talk about it together. And I also created a Discord community so that hopefully we can have a space where we can talk to fellow like-minded souls who are deconstructing the same things and wanting to grow in the same ways. I am so thankful that you are tuning in, dear listener. You are certainly going to learn from Craig's experience in the psychiatry field and get a little bit more nuance about the differences between these various medicines. And I will continue to be here with you each week and exploring, growing, learning together. All right. I love you all. I hope you enjoy today's episode and tune in. Well, then could you first introduce yourself to the listeners to whatever capacity you would want someone to know what it is that you're doing in the world? Hi, I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I'm a psychiatrist in Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm an adolescent, adult, and addiction psychiatrist, and I have a special interest in the use of psychedelics for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love to hear how you got to that space, too, of being you know, a psychiatrist that works with these medicines. Well, it actually goes way back because when I was, see, the year before med school, so this would have been like 1996, I was a member of MAPS way back mm-hmm. then, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I saw in one of their bulletins that first psychedelic research in three decades was about to restart, psychedelic research on humans was about to start at UNM. Albuquerque, and they were looking for volunteers for an, for a DMT study. I contacted Rick Strassman at UNM, and 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 he screened me, and I got into the study, and that that's a fascinating thing in and of itself. But I remember when I was talking to him at one point, I said, "Hey, I'm going to go to med school next year, and I'm going to be a psychiatrist." And he said, "Cool." I said, "Yeah, I want to work with psychedelics," and he said, "Well, that's a long ways away. That, mm-hmm. That's a long, long ways away." So that was '96, and so but now it's happening. You know, I started working extensively with ketamine in 2017, so six years ago. And then that was the year also I started working with the MAPS, uh, MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD study. So the last six years, I've been pretty deep in it. Mm-hmm. And then now with the passage of Prop 122 in Colorado and the decriminalization of four different plant medicines, that already, just in the last couple months, like the whole landscape here is changing radically. Um Lots of patients are wanting to know how could they use psilocybin to treat different psychiatric and psychological woes. And a lot of underground therapists formerly are now popping up above ground like like mushrooms. Yes. <laughs> and so yeah. it's a really thing. Colorado is becoming the national laboratory for what psychedelic decriminalization and, and medicalization might look like. Mm-hmm. So all of us here are super excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can feel that energy in the collective, I think, as 
more things, even like, you know, Michael Pollan's uh, piece on Netflix coming out or just more conversation about psychedelics becoming normalized. And I think more people are seeing the potential benefits that could come from this sort of treatment that for a long time had so much stigmatization around it, right? And so I think you can just like feel the collective kind of changing and there's this energy around psychedelics that is really starting to, like you said, pop up in a way that's above ground, you know, coming out from the underground that has existed for a long time in the history of psychedelics. Yeah. And clearly many people have gotten help in the underground, but a lot of people have been harmed and not that people won't be harmed with decrim and and or medicalization of psychedelics, but it's way easier for kind of the bad apples to be uh, identified and and sorted out. Whereas when everything's in secret, yeah. I think some of the unknowing or unethical or just incompetent people can can keep practicing and and, and harming. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is tricky then because like I'm I'm curious what you think the future looks like in terms of these medicines and what sort of like, you know, control access looks like or what you imagine it will be like. Yeah. I'm guessing there's going to be sort of two parallel trends happening. So one is on the federal level, medicalization is likely to happen soon with MDMA and right. psilocybin. Right. So MDMA might might be 18, 24 months away from actually being an FDA-approved treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And then psilocybin might be a year or two behind that, but both of those are likely coming federally. I'm guessing what's going to happen with decrim and legalization is kind of what's happening with abortion. I'm guessing like there will be states in the U.S. like Colorado where mm. all sorts of things are possible, and there will be states in you know the South and to actually much of the country where none of this will be permitted except for the the federally medicalized things. Yeah. So for for example, um, DMT and mescaline were part of it. This 122 that was just passed statewide in Colorado can't imagine that you know most states in the U.S. are going to decrim or legalize DMT mm. or mescaline. Mm. Although you know those are might be more fringe players in the psychedelic world. We'll see. I mean, I think here in Colorado, what people are most excited about with 122 is psilocybin mm. because psilocybin is something people can do themselves. They can grow their own. And because what the the proposition says is you can't sell it can't be commercialized, but you can grow for personal use or trade or gift. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see what comes with that in the coming months and years. And then in about next six to 12 months, the state of Colorado will start certifying people to work above board with, with psilocybin. And presumably the state would supply that because it would be a, it would be a regulated, you know, again, not, not commercialized, but you would have state sanctioning to work with these mm. medicines. So mm-hmm. that, that, mm-hmm. that regulatory structure is happening, being put into place now. So within the next year or two, you know, therapists. And, and one big question is, will it be only licensed therapists? I th- the way 122 is written is they left it open for underground people who are unlicensed okay. to have a route into the psychedelic treatment world. So unless the Appointed commission changes that, or the legislature changes it. There's a path now for unlicensed people who who have been working extensively with psychedelics to still get state sanctioning to do that if they want. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an important conversation about the gatekeeping around access to this and being able to um, do this in a way that, like you said, can be harmful without proper, you know, experience with the medicine, but also trying to avoid the gatekeeping of it only being to one type of trained professional, I think is going to be a tricky piece. And 
yeah, it's definitely scary to think about the world where it is kind of like abortion, where, you know, like completely separate, mm. depending on the states. I mean, that sort of vision of the future is kind of scary to me to think about how separate we could become as a society. Mm-hmm. But without going too far into that sort of, you know, scary world envisioning. But I'm curious, I think a lot of questions that I get from clients when I'm doing my ketamine work uh, is what's the difference between the different psychedelics? Do you feel like there's a difference between, you know, being able to access MDMA or ketamine or psilocybin and the potential treatments that are, you know, with each medicine? Yeah. First of all, I think those three are really good prototypes, if you will, for psychedelic treatment. One is legal, but the other two are going to be likely medicalized sooner than later. Mm -hmm. And they're very different molecules. They have very different actions in the brain. They have very different actions on kind of the psycho-spiritual realm, but they're all quite helpful. Mm -hmm. One way to look at these three is to think about what kinds of problems they're most helpful for. And then another is maybe a bigger question is what are the the contraindications and cautions with each of them? Mm How about we start with psilocybin? Since we're sure. just talking about that. Sure, sure. Psilocybin has a sweet spot in at least three or four areas. And one is, and this isn't really a medical thing, although I think it is because, you know, I'm publishing an episode of my podcast back from the abyss in a couple of weeks where I talk with a psychiatrist and we talk about this phenomenon of, you know, some percentage of depression is psychospiritual. It's demoralization, it's existential, it's not bipolar, it's not genetic, it's 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 a spiritual emptiness. And so I think there's a real role for psilocybin for people who are demoralized, existentially depressed. If you even look at you know some of these interesting work with end of life uh, and psilocybin, there's some really interesting data on that using psilocybin with people who are terminally ill. And I think, what is it doing? Is it treating their quote-unquote depression? No, I think what it's doing is is opening them up to the beauty and wonder and also just the timelessness of the whole biological cycle and that their death becomes more of just, yeah, like this is part of something much bigger than yourself. Like, mm-hmm. Yes, you're going to die, but you're part of something so much greater and mm-hmm. more amazing and timeless, which I think psilocybin has a unique ability to do that, mm-hmm. to sort of dial you into the collective conscious, into anima, into spirit. And then another, for sure, really interesting use of psilocybin would be for OCD. Mm-hmm. There's some fascinating uh, open-label studies, case reports, where people with severe treatment-resistant OCD do a big dose of psilocybin, like four or five grams, and they go into full remission of OCD for weeks to months. Wow. wow. Which is, yeah, I, and OCD is really interesting. It doesn't have a placebo effect. It's often medication-resistant. So I think that's a really cool mm. Mm-hmm. Genre. And then if you also think of all the disorders that are related to OCD, they're seeming like they might be very psilocybin responsive, like eating disorders, like tick disorders, like grooming, like picking a trichotillomania. Those are all kind of in the OCD umbrella. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting early evidence that psilocybin might be really helpful for those. Mm-hmm. And then, and of course, trauma. And you know, there, I've had a number of people on my podcast talk about healing trauma with psilocybin and Arguably, that's its besides the wonder, joy, and connection part of psilocybin. I think that might be the biggest use of psilocybin um, mm-hmm. as it, it comes above board and becomes decriminalized and medicalized. Mm-hmm. What we don't know yet is how useful is psilocybin for what we might call like endogenous or 
you know, bipolar depression, unipolar depression. So people that have a big family history of endogenous mm-hmm. genetically based depression. How useful psilocybin be? We still don't know. Like mm-hmm. that's a sweet spot of ketamine. Like we know if you have severe bipolar depression, uh, mixed states of bipolar, ketamine is a home run for that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. arguably the, the best thing we've ever seen treatment wise, but it's not clear what's how helpful psilocybin will be for that. Yeah. And then a little bit more about psilocybin. It's super safe. I mean, like it's non-toxic. I mean, you can definitely have a really scary trip. You can be psychologically traumatized. Like you take too much psilocybin or like you take someone who's say suicidal, a bad mindset, and they mm-hmm. take a bunch of psilocybin alone. Like that, that could be terrible. Right. But in general, it's a very safe compound. And then when we look at sort of contraindications, say medications, there's a number of psych meds that block the serotonin 2A receptor where psilocybin does its thing. Right. So all the typical antipsychotics like Abilify and Seroquel and mm-hmm. Tuda and Geodon. And what's uh, important about those, people with serious depression are often on those, particularly bipolar depression. So that's going to be a little tricky if people are trying to use psilocybin to treat you know, severe depressive syndromes of mm-hmm. different etiologies. Mm-hmm. If you're on one of those mm-hmm. 2A blockers, you have to come off that. Right. Um, then we could transition to talk a little bit about ketamine. Ketamine's legal. It's been um, uh, FDA-approved medication for 50 years. Mm-hmm. It's really only been used extensively for depression and PTSD for the last few, let's say, mm-hmm. four or mm-hmm. five years. So we know that ketamine is useful for a whole lot of things. But Again, I think it's in psychiatry, what we're seeing is so many folks with mixed states of bipolar and, and treatment-resistant bipolar depression who've been so hard to treat. Mm-hmm. Like rapid cycling bipolar disorder is a bear to treat. A lot of those people are on six, seven meds. Mm-hmm. Ketamine is a, an amazing mood stabilizer for them. Yeah. Just shockingly good. I mean, think, you know, I've argued on my podcast that ketamine's the best thing for depression, particularly bipolar depression, since Lamictal came on the market in 94. So that's mm. a long time. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. and then there's the whole use of ketamine for psycholytic work. So mm. just to back up a little bit, one way to think about ketamine is that it kind of comes in the sort of three steps of ketamine, like the bottom rung, lower dose ketamine, usually oral ketamine is psycholytic. It opens the psyche. The psycholytic effect can help people feel more comfortable with their therapist, feel more connected, uh, can help them access both conscious and unconscious mind and trauma states. It's really an accelerant of therapy. I've had a number of people tell me that it felt like they could never really engage in psychotherapy until they did CAP, Academy of Psychotherapy, and then they mm-hmm. oh, okay, I open up. Um, the second round yeah. of ketamine is psychedelic ketamine. So that's usually IV or IM. That's what I do primarily in my practice. And that's where you're um, sending people deeply into ketamine, usually to a partially or fully dissociative state where they're in the, as they say, the K-hole or a place where there's no body, no room, no chair. And then the top rung of ketamine, the high dose is for anesthesia. Right. But ketamine is, is a very different molecule. It's a very different, has different treatment indications at each. So mm-hmm. again, you know, in mental health, psychology, psychiatry, we're most interested in the bottom rung, which is the lower dose sessions where people doing oral ketamine, maybe spending a couple hours with their therapist doing somatic work and or on talk therapy versus kind of the middle rung where people are doing nearly dissociative or fully dissociative IV or IM. Maybe with therapy or maybe not. I mean, I find in my practice that I 
typically do pretty deep cable dives with people mm -hmm. and they're and they're usually pretty discombobulated afterwards and so oftentimes the most useful therapy is the next day two days three days mm -hmm. so i always encourage people to come see me within a couple of days of their ketamine session or see their EMDR therapist right. or psychologist or, or whoever they're doing their primary therapy with mm -hmm. to take advantage of that sort of window of resilience and peace that you get after a deep psychedelic dose of ketamine. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. um, ketamine has almost no medication interactions. I mean, the biggest one is, is opioids. If you're on opioids, including Suboxone, ketamine is not going to work as well, which is an interesting window into the mechanism of ketamine is that ketamine does a bunch of things in the brain, but one thing it appears to do is it resensitizes the endorphin receptors, the mu opioid receptors, yeah. which are involved in in feeling safe and protected. Mm -hmm. And and interestingly, you know, a lot of people, especially with early childhood trauma neglect, have derangements in their endorphin system. Mm. Like their opioid receptors are not functioning right or the distribution of them is abnormal. So there's something about ketamine, I think, that is repotentiating those receptors. And I think that's part of the few days of, of really powerful resourcing you get after uh, psychedelic ketamine is that you're, you're in a state where you're sort of held. Mm -hmm. So whatever kind of therapy you're doing, it's a sweet spot to really dive into that. Yes, absolutely. I definitely see things through a relational lens. Like you mentioned, that child you know, who has trauma from a young age from the dynamics of whatever they've grown up then has that connection to their biological response from that. And so then thinking about these medicines and the importance of the relational work that you can do with the clients that you're working with to unpack things and to support them through that process and, and the importance of community being medicine, right? Like you could do all of this sort of work in, in an office with a client, but the reality is if they still go back to a home space where there is trauma and ongoing abuse, there won't be that shift, right? Like the therapeutic alliance becomes a sort of example for a sort of relationship where there's space to be yourself, to be safe, and then taking that out into the relationships outside and then seeing mm -hmm. that shift. I think it's been interesting too, working with clients who also open up too fast, right? And have gone into the medicine and then have spilled out their trauma and then had a whole response to that as well. So it, it's tricky that building of a, a rapport with a client so that they feel safe to be able to talk about these things and have the holding container afterwards. Cause yeah, when you do open up, if someone, you know, tells someone their story of sexual assault that they've never shared to anyone else and then opens up in that time, like there can be a lot afterwards that is really difficult to process with that. So I think that's also been an interesting part of the work of like the pacing of opening up about trauma with these things. But yeah, I'm very curious in terms of my focus, in terms of sexuality and healing, I definitely started my focus into this field with sexual trauma and have kind of talked about a lot in this podcast how the field of psychology really only focuses on the trauma and not the whole spectrum of healing there, which is reconnecting to pleasure and embodiment, right? So I'm curious how you see psychedelics, MDMA, other sorts of medicines as playing a role in that sort of healing and that future for our collective. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's a good probably entree into talking about MDMA. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about psilocybin, about ketamine. So MDMA is a totally different kind of molecule from those two. It's methylene dioxy methamphetamine. So it's actually crystal meth with another little loop on the benzene ring. So it's not crystal meth, but it is an amphetamine. And I mm -hmm. think that speaks to some of its medical risks. And each of these 
these sort of prototypical psychedelics can get us to the well. You know, let's let's talk about sexual trauma. Clearly, you can do really powerful healing with ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA. But I think what's unique about MDMA is its ability to dial down fear, dial up trust. And, and this speaks to what you just said, to feel love. It's been some beautiful stories on my podcast about people doing MDMA therapy and for the first time experiencing love and thinking like, is this, is this love? Like I've never felt this because they've been oftentimes so numbed and dissociated for so long different kinds of attachment wounding and right and and so mdma can actually help you feel what that's like to be loved like to feel to love yourself and to be loved by the people you're working with and it's interesting i would argue that ketamine and psilocybin don't have that per se my sense with psilocybin is more like there's this beauty and wonder that you're so so connected to all like anima and spirit, but it's it's not really love. It's more like a oneness and like everything's going to be okay because the biosphere's churning and there's life and death and renewal and evolution and we're a teeny part of that, but we're part of it. Whereas MDMA is more like discovering that you are a being of love. And I think that is that heart opening, that love opening part of MDMA is maybe what's most exciting about it, not just medically, but but psychologically and people just doing their own work, even with their partner. But it's also, I think, what's led MDMA to have much more riskiness with boundary crossings and violations. And there's been a lot in the media. And I mean, this has been happening. This happened back right. in the 50s and 60s. It's happening now. And that is the fact that there's such a dissolution of fear and boundary. And there's such profound trust that even well-meaning therapists and clinicians can and cross uh, physical and sexual boundaries and do great harm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, a, a belief in the mental health, psychological, psychiatric community that these people that are crossing sexual boundaries with psychedelic treatment, particularly MDMA, that they're terrible people, that they're perpetrators. They're like these, we have to weed out these mm. bad actors. But again, if you look at who's actually doing it, most of them are just, they're us. You know, Laura North was, was on my podcast this summer. We talked about this extensively, this idea that the if we don't get our own shit together, we're going to hurt people. And that's true as a therapist or psychiatrist, yes. psychologist. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, it's one thing to hurt your person, you know, your client or patient with your words or your lack of response to a phone call or a text or showing up late, like, like those kind of those empathic failures and countertransference acting out. But in the psychedelic space, particularly, I think with MDMA, if we as therapists don't have it together and really have done our work, we are going to hurt people. Not because we're terrible, evil, um, sadistic people or, you know, or um, preying on. No, it's just because we are in such a powerful space that we're, we're we're letting our unconscious play out. Like there's a really powerful paper um, Glenn Gabbard wrote back in the late 90s. He's a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst. And he looked at, what was it, like 80 people, all psychiatrists and psychologists who had sexually crossed sexual boundaries with their patients and clients. Mm -hmm. And he said the common factor that they all described was that they loved their patients. Mm -hmm. They felt such love for them that they thought this, this was the next step. 
and you can imagine like if you're working with a substance like MDMA, that's just can be so full of love and connection that this is actually my biggest fear of MDMA being more widely used in a therapeutic stance is that we have to police ourselves really carefully. Totally. So people aren't hurt. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, the reality is we're humans, right? We're humans in these professions with flaws and, and, and failures. Uh, I read Woman and Madness, which is an interesting book on the feminist take on psychology and psychiatry. And there were some really dark stories about sexual assault violence that was going on through the power differentials of, you know, the psychologist or the psychiatrist coming in in ways that were not what you were talking about, about loving the client, but like quite literally dark use of that power relationship that you just, you, you would hope that we're moving past those points and that we have enough community and checks and co-therapists in this model, right, to be able to avoid these things. But the reality is we're still humans, right? And so, yeah, it's going to be a tricky navig- navigating, you know, that reality as this drug and this medicine becomes more prevalent. but. My thought too is like, where is the future of this for people to do on their own? Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I I see a world where there could be so much benefit for a couple, a partnership, any sort of dynamic of a sexual relationship that maybe has fallen out of the spark in their dynamic and wants to be able to use a substance to re-bring more aliveness to their relationship or being able to just connect back to pleasure in their body. I'm curious how you see this playing out in, you know, in that spectrum of healing from sexual trauma to pleasure. Like, where is the future of this going? Because, because yes, there is so much work to do in in the initial processing of the sexual trauma. Absolutely. And substances, medicines like this can help us to open up, be able to process that with a therapist. But like, what does that continued somatic work look like of reconnecting with the body after trauma? Yeah, my guess is that's going to happen in parallel. So for example, if MDMA gets... Um, medicalized that it will start being widely used across the country, but like so many things, I think it will break out. I wouldn't be surprised, like in a state like Colorado, after two, three, four years of medicalization, that there we would move towards decrim. It's yeah. kind of like what happened with with weed, right? You know, so in some states, a lot of states, the medicalization of weed preceded the the decrim or the legalization. So I wouldn't be because. Well, if you look at what MDMA was used for before it was criminalized in 85, it was mostly used for couples work. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it was used for trauma, but no, it was mostly used for couples work. And there's some beautiful books about that era. And that's arguably one of the most powerful uses of it is to, because MDMA, I think, can clear away all the cobwebs and detritus and just all the stickiness and the accumulated years of just stuff that happens between two people. And I think it can just sort of wipe it away and allow you to see, like, oh, this is why I chose you. Mm-hmm. This is, I see you and I feel you and I can be with you now in this moment and not have so much just accumulated hurt and baggage and wounding and, you know, all that kind of transferential stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's clearly been Rick Doblin's intention when he's, you know, the head of the maps, when he talks about why he started MAPS and why he has done you know, decades of work to try to bring MDMA to medicalization. He said his goal is to have it widely spread in society, not just as a medicine, but as something that people can use for you know, the betterment of themselves and, and connection and love and relationships. 
So he's been pretty open about that, that medicalization is a strategy, which is fine. That's often the way it goes with these kind of things. Right. You got to start somewhere in the system, right? You got to play. <laughs> you got to you got to prove you got to get the collective on board. And absolutely. But I think what you're talking about is so key is that there is space for this to be with people who are healthy, right? Who aren't trying to process just trauma, right? I think that some of my fears around how sexual education is, you know, shared widely is it's so taboo that all we talk about is the, you know, the bad things, the, the things that might happen with sexual activity versus like the whole pleasure continuum. And I wonder what sort of, you know, narrative is going to be around psychedelics if it's really pinholed into the it's used for trauma, it's used in a medical context, it's used for this compared to, you know, yeah, this other future of the reality that these things can be used on a pleasure spectrum as well. Right. Yeah, even the simple pleasure of being able to enjoy a hug. I mean, yeah. I know you had listened to MDMA and the Inner Healer episode mm -hmm. on my podcast. And, yeah. and, you know, he was the first person I worked with in the MDMA study. And I think I talked about in that episode that in the early months of knowing him, I mean, he wouldn't even look at me. Mm -hmm. he, he could, it was hard for him to meet my gaze, much less like give me a hug. But by the end of the MDMA study, and whenever I've seen him since on and off over the years, he wants and gives me a really big, warm, no. lasting hug. And yeah. every time I, he's, I see him, he's, he's like, Dr. H, and gives me a huge hug and holds that hug. I think mm -hmm. there's just so much joy. And like, we can yeah. just hold each other, two men. And this is a man who is sexually assaulted by a man. Right. by an older physician, you know, wow. so there's so much yeah. transferential stuff with me. And, you know, to me, like almost nothing speaks more powerfully about this guy's healing that he was sexually assaulted by an older physician male. And then, mm -hmm. and then he and I have such a trusting, loving relationship and that he likes to give me a big hug. Yeah. I mean, talk about bringing your body back online and safety back online and, and the joy of touch. Yes. And yeah, I think MDMA has really such great potential for sort of bringing sexual pleasure and connection back online or just like touch, touch. Like another woman who I worked with in, this, in the study who was in the placebo arm, and that's mm -hmm. a whole other painful story what happened to her being in the placebo arm. But mm -hmm. she ended up finding underground work on her own and did MDMA work and was able to experience the pleasure of touch. She had yeah. that had been extinguished yeah. in her. And, and um, and even just like holding a hand or having someone just touch her shoulder, like she talked about how the two therapists, the man and woman she worked with in the ground, just, you know, they negotiated and talked about touch a lot, but by um, the second or third MDMA-assisted session, she was really able to want and feel safe with touch, and that continued outside of sessions. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. just, oh, she's high on MDMA thing. Like, no, she... Um, and even, you know, when I see her now, occasionally she'll ask me, I was let her lead, but you know, maybe one in three times I see her, she's like, could, could I have a hug? And yeah. it's, it's when I just, every time she says it, I think that's amazing. This is a woman who's been so much sexual assault from mm. men have hurt. So many men have hurt her so badly. Mm. And, and here me, I'm, I'm a tall man in authority, her right. doctor. And, you know, she sees me like, I really want a hug. Mm. Yeah. It yeah. says a lot about the healing power of MDMA assisted therapy and other psychedelic assisted therapies that that you could go from don't touch me to to your touch feels safe and good. 
Yes. And the power of the relationship of the safe space that you're creating, you know, with your warm empathy with that paired together can be so incredibly powerful. And, you know, I'm thinking about my own experiences on the medicine and the benefit of pleasure, even without touch, like the ability. I'd be curious if there's any sort of um, modalities that are walking people through or doing like guided meditation work on embodiment. Right. Like I've had experiences where I've not been touched by anybody at all and felt deep, deep, deep pleasure in my body just by being able to connect and tune in and focus into those areas. I think that's where my understanding of somatics and all this starts to tune in and come together where I'm just curious, do we ever guide people through meditations of connecting to pleasure in their body? No touch, close on everything, right? Like just allowing someone to feel that in their body, I think can be a powerful space. So much of our work is all up here in the cognitive, but I'm Mm -hmm. just curious about the actual embodiment and the therapeutic benefits of that as well. Yeah. Well, I hope people are doing that. That needs to happen. Yeah. I, mean, Dude, I was just reminded of my first psilocybin experience when I was 18. At one point, I just laid down in this um, in this meadow. This is on the side of Pikes Peak mm-hmm. on this beautiful fall day. And just talk about the touch. But this was like the, the ground and the grass. Ah. And it was one of the most vivid memories of my life of just like going into oneness of all that. It just like, right. just the the buzzing humming biosphere and just realizing like it's boundaryless and it's all connected mm-hmm. and again this sounds kind of cliche and woo but it's true like if, if you've experienced psilocybin you know that to be true that psilocybin opens you to that channel and you know that's touch like nobody was touching me i was just true. touching nature true, 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 you know, true. I was touching grass and dirt and it was ecstatic but i think you bring up a good point that so many people who are hurting especially people who've been hurt by other people have become disembodied or numb or yeah and i think a lot of powerful work with ketamine or androcilocybin or under mdma involves this get in touch and feel your body and your body's amazing Mm -hmm. and our bodies are here to help us and to serve us and to bring us pleasure and to they're amazing yeah. But yes, so often trauma just shuts down the body and right and just becomes sort of screeching smoke alarm of the amygdala and the mm-hmm. frontal lobe, but not, but the body is just offline. Right, 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 right. And it's important to be able to process those things in a cognitive way, have relational support and do all of that work. But I feel like the field of psychology is missing a piece if we stop, if we don't reconnect to our body. We don't take the time to honor that that is also a part of the therapy is being able to feel again, because that is part of what happens through trauma is that severe disconnect. And so I think, you know, medicines like these can be so powerful, at least through my own lived experience, have been Mm -hmm. very powerful in bringing back that sense of connection to my body in a way that I could have never imagined otherwise. And I think my my hope is to continue to integrate that experience in a, a you know sober state of that mind body connection. You start with feeling that on the medicine, and then continuing to integrate, knowing that that level of connection and capacity of feeling is possible. But bringing it back, you know, maybe through other ways like yoga or breath work or other sorts of things like that. But that feels like such a key piece of the whole spectrum when we're talking about healing through sexual trauma. You know, that initial processing, the relational safety, and also 
the body piece. I just, I get so frustrated that this gets left out of the equation. Yeah. What about in your doctoral training? Are you doing, are there any classes or Nothing. somatic work? Nothing. Nothing on somatic therapy? And I scream all the time about it to my professors because I'm like, where is this and why not? And I think I'm sure you can imagine, you know, it's 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 part of the history of the field of what, you know, the the way we do healing is talk therapy. We process these things. And there, I mean, that's a whole Western, you know, sort of thing, a colonial thing that has deconnected us from our bodies and doesn't see the benefit of that. There was some discussion in my um, trauma class about Peter Levine's work and somatic experiencing therapy. But one day, you know what I mean? There's There's no deeper connection with this. And I think the medicines like MDMA and these other experiences, like you said, psilocybin, I think, you know, in my own, the safety of my own home, listening to music and feel the the bass in my body. That was a powerful experience that I think could really, at least for me as a sexual assault, uh, as a sexual assault survivor to reconnect to my body in that way has been life changing. And it makes me one sad that there's not enough space because of the stigma around all these things to talk about that. And I imagine there's a lots of stories of people who have these sorts of experiences. And I just I'm very passionate about making sure that that's a part of the discussion around sexual assault healing and especially psychedelic work. Yeah, I'm guessing in psychiatry residency, somatic therapy is not a topic either. It wasn't when I was when I was in residency. Oh, one, no, five. I mean, we learned, I think, five different modalities of yeah. psychotherapy, which was awesome, but yeah. nothing somatic. And yeah. I, mean, I have to say that the few somatic therapy sessions I've done, both with and without psychedelics, have been so unbelievably powerful, like yeah. shock, shockingly powerful that what mm-hmm. lives in the body. And each time I've done a somatic therapy session, I, I can't quite believe it. <laughs> As it's progressing, I think, this is so powerful and I can't believe what's coming up and we're only like four minutes in right. or seven minutes in. Right. So it is a shame that psychiatry and psychology has largely ignored that. Right. Right. But that's also why we get to be a part of shaping that new future, right? Through having conversations mm-hmm. like this, through remembering this and through bringing this lens when we're talking with other colleagues about the importance of this part that is often left out because you know, the reality is our, our experiences are embodied. And if we're forgetting that half, we're, I would say we're forgetting half of the equation, right? 50%, maybe mm. more, who knows? But, you know, like a huge chunk to say the least. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Yeah. And I just hope that the people who are experiencing these things and their body and reconnecting outside of a uh, trauma therapist lens in an office feel like they don't have to have shame for the experiences that they're having. I think right now, without it being normalized as a powerful treatment, a lot of people probably still feel, you know, at least something I feel, feel shame to be able to talk about the healing that they've experienced on these things. And so I just, I hope that that can be normalized for people as we continue to legalize and create more space for this within the system that also people doing it outside of the system feel space for the true healing that they've experienced on these medicines. Yeah. I wonder too, even thinking of like risks of these versus, you know, legal marijuana, legal cannabis. You know, I've talked about this in my podcast in a couple episodes, but you know, here in Colorado, we're regularly seeing people have psychotic breaks and Mm. convert to schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder from using large amounts of THC, whether just straight up THC, like dabbing or the really potent sativas. And you know, when was the last time I saw someone in my office with a 
still seven problem. Mm. Never, I've never seen mm. that. Never. Yeah. Have I seen right. have I seen people that have abused MDMA? Sure. But as a primary reason to seek out psychiatric treatment, I've never seen that. Mm. I've had a, a small handful of people who are ketamine addicts in, mm. in the last 20 years. But but in general, we think of these three that we spent time talking about today. I mean, having seen gazillion patients over the last two decades, th- those don't factor in, in terms of leading t- to big psychiatric problems. Nothing like nothing like alcohol and weed. That's what exactly what I was saying. What about alcohol, the one that's completely yeah. legal? And we're just like, yeah, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. Yeah. Death, yeah. most, you know, suicide, you know, taking away, you know, lowering your in, your inhibitions and there's a lot of suicide mm. that occurs on alcohol and all the other things that come with that but that's the legal one that's the one we can we can take pictures of and and post on our instagram and that's fine you know like it's just such an interesting world i think people are starting to see more and more how you know the, the scheduling schedule one of these sorts of things are just a complete you know propaganda piece of what yeah. does and does not Insane. fit in yeah within the system Within the system, if we look at addiction rates with alcohol, our legal drug, wow, right? Like, I just think the hypocrisy is becoming so clear that it's going to be hard for people to ignore the more science comes out about these things. Yeah. yeah. I know you think of alcohol versus psilocybin. It's just comical and awful yes. to think about the the risk profile yes. of those two. Yes. Yeah. How yeah. many people's lives are completely destroyed by alcohol? How many marriages are ruined? How much child abuse is fostered and mm-hmm. neglect? And I often think, like, when you think of sort of the scary externalizing things of alcohol, like, would you rather rather walk down a dark street with a, a bunch of people who are really drunk, or a bunch of people like on mushrooms? Like, you would. Yeah, is that even a question? Mushrooms, a hundred percent. They'll give me a high five down the alley. I'll be like, cool. We're yeah, one. or they might skitter away. Like, <laughs> are, are you are you okay? But you know. Alcohol, yeah, because through its disinhibition, yes. tends to bring out the worst in all yes. of us. So, yes, yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. So it's one conversation at a time, like talking about these things, raising the collective consciousness about these things to to understand that the narratives we've been sold might not be truth, right? Mm. Yeah, I want to be conscious of your time too. And unless you have anything else on your heart that you really want to share, I do have a closing question that I ask everyone on the podcast. Sure. I might just say one thing before your closing question. Yeah. Um, I have a podcast called Back from the Abyss, Psychiatry and Stories. And it's it's a bit like This American Life meets Psychiatry. So it's patients telling stories of plunging into psychiatric darkness mm-hmm. and how they got it out and with cool music. And yeah. it's uh, check it out. I think you might like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the one question I ask everyone is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? I'm thinking, and this partially has to do with my age, and I'm 56, and I have twins, girls who are 21, and my oldest is 24, my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I think, I wish we could normalize more that um, we're all going to fail our kids. Mm. You know, like, there is really something to being the good enough mother. Like, you know, as I tell my parents that I see when they're so upset about their young kids, I'm seeing, I'm like, look, we j- if we can just like, we're aiming for a B minus, like if we can love our kids and have some patience and we're all going to hurt our kids, you know, much like we do as therapists with our clients, like we're going to fail them. We're going to mm-hmm. say and do things or not say and do things that are very hurtful. Right. So, you know, my wife's a therapist too, and we often joke, mm. uh, how are we screwing up our kids? But, you know, <laughs> we have we have hurt our kids. You know, our kids have been in therapy because of the 
us, you know, and, and um, so I think again to have some compassion, self compassion as parents that it's totally normal that you're going to fail your kids, and you, you just like get up and you try again and you try to give a heartfelt apology and learn from your mistakes and just keep going because perfectionism in parenting is a road to misery. Right, absolutely, and even to to push on that and reframe with you, I mean dare I say, then that's actually wonderful parenting, right? Because the reality is we're all human. And so if you're teaching your children that I am human, I am going to fail, I am going to mess up, and we can still stay in relationship, that's normalizing the rupture and repair of human connection so that when they grow up, when they're in other relationships, when they mess up, they don't feel like that's the end of the connection. It is part of the process. That is part of the humanness of being in connection with other people. And always having that as part of the nature of any sort of relationship, I would say, is wonderful parenting. But yeah, normalizing that that rupture and repair, our humanness, our failure in that as part of that process mm-hmm. is is such an important thing because there's so much pressure to be perfect, to be good, to do it exactly this way. And and like you said, I don't I don't think that's possible because that's not human. That's not what it means to be a human. Yep, so agree. Yeah, it was lovely. So fun. Yeah, it was lovely to. Really glad you invited me. Thank you. Yeah, it was lovely to have your expertise and to learn from all your work and all your research. I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five star review wherever you listen to your podcast, and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.